0: This episode is brought to you by Gustiamo, the online store for Italian ingredients and pantry staples. Learn more at gustiamo.com.
1: This week on Meet and 3, we're foraging. From Prospect Park to an iPhone app, what does it mean to find our own food?
2: We've recorded, I think, over 1,300 species of fungi occurring in New York City
1: you know, my ingredients are making themselves. And so that rather than having the stress of needing to source the things I need, I can just walk out my back door and I can have them.
2: Foraging overall is born out of living with the land and with the seasons by indigenous people.
1: Tune in to meeting 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. All right, it's Monday and it's time for What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we're going to be talking about ransomware because maybe you noticed that a few weeks ago, like right around the end of May, uh, JBS, the world's largest meat company, uh, got hacked. And they paid an $11 million ransom to get their services back online. So to talk with me about that today, I have um, John Hoffman, a senior research fellow at the Food Protection and Defense Institute. Bet you didn't know that existed, because I know I didn't. Um, Colonel Hoffman, as we will be referring to him from now on, had a 30-year military career, Uh, and has served as the first food and agriculture infrastructure program manager within the U.S. Department of Homeland Security um, and the Infrastructure Protection Directorate. Colonel Hoffman works with government and industry to document and assess vulnerabilities within the national food and agriculture sector. He identifies effective mitigation steps and builds resilience into these critical national supply chains to assist in the implementation of our national health security. Well, really, our national food security. Um, Anyway, welcome to the show, John. I can't. First of all, it's so cool that this organization Food Protection and Defense Institute even exists. I mean, I would never have known this if I hadn't. I'm not sure how I found you. Um, But I was just doing research on that crazy JBS hack and um, and somehow you popped or the Food Defense and Security or Food Protection and Defense Institute popped up and then I found you. Um, I emailed them and they sent me to you. So um, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today to explain um, kind of what what we're doing to protect the food supply from attacks like this, which I suspect will become more and more um, familiar to all of us. So let's start by asking, what is the Food Protection and Defense Institute and what do you do there?
2: Well, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me to uh, participate here and and share a little bit about what we're doing, what we know about what's going on and what you know what we think we need to be doing as we move into the future. Mm-hmm. So first, the Food Protection Defense Institute is at the University of Minnesota. It's in the uh, Department of, Department of Veterinary Medicine, and you might wonder why food is there. <laughs> but it would be um, probably interesting to note to most people that most uh, most who work in the food safety world are actually veterinarians. I am not. I'm a systems person, but I work right. with lots of veterinarians along with public, other public health doctors and whatnot. But uh, that's where the institute lies. It was originally created as a center of excellence in the academic community by the Department of Homeland Security. And in fact, it was arguably the first one created. There's a little bit of issue on what time of day something happened to one or another, but they were both created the same day. And I believe this one was actually created first. Um, in getting things done. It was originally um, National Center for Food Protection and Defense. And then it was renamed the Food Protection and Defense Institute to give it a little bit stronger legs um, and kind of as part of the planning for the future. And what, what the institute does is it works with government, it works with the private sector, and it works with academia to look at things that would that would present threats to the food supply. And this can be kind of you know, targeted thing happening at a particular plant or a particular kind of food or a particular process problem, or it can be you know, entire food chains. And we, we do a wow. lot of work in looking at how the supply chains function, how they're vulnerable, and what steps can be taken to mitigate sure. those vulnerabilities from farm all the way to food retail, food service, and mm-hmm. ultimately your dinner table.
1: Yeah, right. Absolutely. Incredible. Well, I feel much comforted to know that you're out there and doing this, because I must say, I always have wondered, like, how how does the government, you know, and protect our food supply? I mean, I I often read stories because I follow the trade so much. Um, in the meat industry in particular, because that's something I'm especially interested in. But also, you know, there's a lot of like um, agricultural espionage that goes on. There's, you know, there's all kinds of things that are going completely under the radar of most of the public. But I mean, only a few years ago, there was a big case where um, Chinese, uh, a bunch of Chinese nationals were, were uh, arrested for stealing seeds from um fields out in <laughs> out in the midwest because they were like new seeds that were being developed it was seed technology and and these guys were like literally digging these seeds up and putting them in stacks of napkins that they had taken from like Wendy's I mean do you remember that story John because it really was very funny but also kind of chilling <laughs> Well, unfortunately,
2: uh, despite the efforts of uh, law enforcement, you know, all the various agencies of federal government, all the food safety folks, things like that do happen. Part of this is pure competition. Some of it is actual, you know, nation to nation espionage. everybody's looking for an edge up in whatever their economic activities are, and that holds true in the food world. So if you run yes. a food company in China and somebody's developing a more resistant form of corn to to corn rust or some other corn disease, um, it would be useful to, for you to have that as well to remain competitive. So those Absolutely. things go on. And by the way, they've gone on for you know decades and decades and decades.
1: I'm sure that's true. I think it's just more likely that... Um Sorry about that. I think it's just more. Um, I think it's just you know becoming more and more prevalent as our as our world becomes more globalized, basically. But anyway, let's let's talk about the JBS uh, ransomware attack. Now, this happened right around the end of May. Um, so can you take the listeners through like which systems were targeted, and then. Um, since it wasn't actual you know like the actual slaughtering of plant of of animals or or even the processing of animals where you could imagine um, you know if somebody inserted a, a bacteria or something like that um, where the the whole plant would have to shut down but the plants did have to shut down Why did the plants shut down when what was stolen essentially or hacked by these um, ransomware developers? Um, It wasn't that. It was more like names of people or, you know, hazard and critical control protections. I mean, HACCP stuff. I mean, what, what was it exactly that they that they targeted? And then why was it that the plants had to shut down, even though it wasn't actually on the kill floor?
2: Well, as you can imagine, these are complex um, digital information networks that businesses the size of JPS use to connect all their business activities, all their business units, and what's happening on the factory, the food processing floors, if you will, the food manufacturing floors. And Mm -hmm. there's a tremendous amount of information being moved back and forth. One of the requirements um, under the law is that records particularly as they relate to quality safety testing standards adherence supervision inspection those records have to be available um at all times and the records for a batch of product must be available at the time the product is shipped if for some reason um, those records are not available you can't process you can't ship product you can't ship you no distribution so what happened was right. the business unit was attacked yep and mm-hmm. it took down if you will a lot of those records and a lot of those systems that they use to document what's happening. And I would suspect that there was a great deal of caution on their part, too, because you don't know how far the attackers had gotten into the systems. Um, right. And not knowing that, you don't want to lose access, if you will, to some of the safety and quality and testing um Infrastructure that you have in place, and you want to protect that. So the simplest thing to do is to shut it all down. And basically, that's what happened. Um, the bad guys got into their corporate networks. They were able to move within the corporate networks. Uh, it's probably a case of everything being connected together and probably not quite enough compartmentalization, which gave mm. the um, the ransomware folks the chance to get in and begin to lock things up in their, in their systems. Mm-hmm. There's probably wow. a lot of data in there from customers and, you know, vendors and those well, kinds of things. Well, I was going to say, they, I
1: mean, there had to be like everyone's address and phone number and and maybe even their bank routing or, you know, like, you know, all kinds sure. of information that could be very, very valuable to somebody down the line. I mean, never mind using it to extract a ransom from this victim, but then you could then use some of that data To go after other uh, people who are part of that supply chain. I mean, I I can see how very uh, serious this would be. Now, Under the Food Safety and Modernization Act, which is one of the reasons why these plants have to maintain all of these records relating to, um, you know, uh, origins of product, uh, you know, safety and uh, hazard analysis and critical control point safety records, all of the things that keep our food supply safe. Um, So that that has all been sort of upgraded and modernized uh, over the course of the last 10 years or so. you directed me uh, to a, a a document that you provided with lots and lots of references to cybersecurity. So, can you talk a little bit about the aspects of food production and food safety that are dictated by these cyber controls? I mean, yes, we have to keep the records on on um, uh, inspection protocols and stuff, but what else? What else are they look Are they keeping records on? I mean, you alluded to a few things, but let's kind of go through that.
2: Well, sure. First, I'd like to point out that the yes. Food Safety Monetization Act um, of 2010 signed into, 11 in, into a law um, in January of 2011 um, actually doesn't contain in it any direct statement that companies will adhere to any specific standard for um, digital systems and digital records that would have I to see. be available for inspection or reporting. It does say however that's that they have to be available and they have to be accessible. So that mm-hmm. would, mm-hmm. you know, in indirectly tell you that you've got to have a system that's protected and hardened so that it, that is the case. But th- but beyond that, you know, it didn't it, it recognizes the use of digital systems throughout the food supply chain without directly calling them out for hazard analysis or security steps to protect them. But on the other hand, there's an awful lot of other things in food safety that it doesn't directly call out, like specific kinds of agents and specific kinds Mm -hmm. of contamination, but says in general, you must protect against hazards to the food system. And I would submit that if your system is shut down, while the food may not be contaminated, the hazard is that the protein is not going into the supply chain and people could not, you know, might not be fed. So I think that's a pretty significant hazard. So where are these devices? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they are ubiquitous. It, I mean, they're everywhere. If you just take a look at a plant, stand outside, look at the plant building. There are cameras and security systems and access controls that are all based on cyber systems. They're all information system based. It's all right. digital. You walk into the plant and as a product you know, moves through the plant, a computer is controlling that whole process. I, I don't care whether it's milk flowing from a tank, liquid milk, into a pasteurization process or right. whether it's... You know, slaughter of animals and the meat's being moved through a series of steps. You know, if you're processing, you know, vegetables, there are all sorts of cooking devices and cutting devices and magnetometers to check for the presence of, you know, anything magnetic that could be dangerous and all kinds of inspection things like x rays and whatnot of food products all through the manufacturing plants. And guess what? They're all being run by computers and all the data is going into right. computers. Right. And
1: that's, that's been the case for, for more than a decade. So, that pre, I mean, these systems certainly predate uh, the Food Safety Modernization Act, which is why I found it so incredible that there was no actual language that was specific
2: about these cybersecurity issues. Well, actually, these systems uh, began to surface in food processing in the 70s. Okay, there you
1: go. So, computerization is not a new thing for the food system in general. No,
2: it's not. And it... I,
1: I, I just find it inexplicable that that there would not be some very significant, you know, like very specific language to protect those systems. You know, is that because cybercrime is is a relatively new and developing field of criminality?
2: It's certainly an evolving one, but it has the beginnings in the '90s. I'm, yeah, I can right. tell you that denial of service attacks and and theft of computer um, computer data from food industry uh, actually started um, in the '90s. And and you know most people don't realize this, but the first kind of network penetration of large computer systems um, actually goes back to the '60s. That's when. Wow. Um, operatives from the Soviet Union began targeting systems, even when it was dial-up connection between computers. Targeting Amazing. computers, trying to get in them to steal data and steal intellectual property, to steal you know records, uh, and also to destroy records that, that were digital. Uh, efforts right. go all the way back to then. There's a, a great book written back in those days called The Cuckoo's Egg. If you want to want some interesting entertainment about reading about the first. Time somebody really began to track down hackers. It's and this all takes place in the 60s. What wow. called "The cuckoo Egg." Yeah, it's really interesting. That's so none of this was new. In 2010, when this when this was passed, none of this was new. It was an ongoing problem already, particularly the IP theft back then, right. uh, intellectual property theft, I mean, excuse me, if I use acronyms. And yeah. you know, denial of service or DOS type attacks on computer systems. They were common. So when FDA and it was supposed to do this in conjunction with uh, USDA FSIS, who actually uh, JBS is the constituent of for most things, um, they, were, they were directed to work together to develop these new ways of, of addressing hazards. Yep. And this was never put into any of the implementing regulations that FDA promulgated after the law was passed. And wow. I believe that, that that's going to have to change.
1: I think so, too. I'm going to I'm going to take a, a quick break here because, um, uh, well, we have to do a sponsor drop and then um, we can talk a little bit more about sort of why perhaps some of those, um, you know, some of those security protocols have not been implemented. So stay tuned, everybody. We'll be right back with Colonel John Hoffman uh, talking about the JBS ransomware attack and, and basically the security of our food system. So we'll be right back.
0: This episode is brought to you by Gustiamo, the online store for ingredients and pantry staples from Italy. Gustiamo's mission is to improve the quality of Italian food in the States. They independently import the best and most authentic food from Italian farmers and food makers, wonderful people dedicated to their land and their traditions. When you're searching for quality Italian pasta, San Marzano tomatoes, and real extra virgin olive oil. Gustiamo has them all. Shop their vinegars, coffees, sweets, and so much more. From northern hilltop hazelnut farmers in Piemonte to southern sea salt millers off the coast of Sicily, Gustiamo works exclusively with small family food companies in Italy. When you shop with Gustiamo, you'll know that your ingredients are authentically Italian and of the highest quality. For our listeners, Gustiamo is offering a 10% discount on your online order with Gusti code HRN. Learn more at gustiamo.com. That's G-U-S-T-I-A-M-O.com.
1: So, okay, we were talking about the fact that these, that the protocols for kind of hardening these systems were never specific and never really written. But then it's also true, and I know you didn't want to address the state of mind uh, that might have, but I'm going to mention to my listeners that any, that cybersecurity standards legislation that would have protected the food supply, among other industries, was defeated by filibuster by the Republican Congress in 2012. And so since then, when you know, that went down. So now I think we can sort of understand why there hasn't been a more widespread uh, industry-wide effort to kind of harden their systems. Um, has anything happened since then? Or has it just kind of been like the Wild West out there, like everybody – is just making up their own way forward as they go along without having any kind of regulations or um, guidances from the FDA or Food Safety Inspection Services, otherwise known as FSIS, um, or the USDA?
2: Well, unfortunately, I suppose that's a good way to look at it. I mean, that's been the condition. There's a lot of people in the food world who... For one thing, have kind of a mindset that that's not going to happen to me. It might happen to somebody else, but nobody's going to bother me making cornflakes or something. Well, incredible. Yeah, yeah, they do. And most of them have probably been penetrated and don't even know it. That's what's really scary. And then we have cases where we know we've had attacks against major brands, but the brands, the the companies that own those brands, they don't want to acknowledge that it occurred because it's an adverse. appearance for the brand, if you will, that it, sure, been it could have cyber an cyber impact tech. on so their stock it could have an yeah, impact on their they stock They just don't value. want to talk about it. Right. And of course then if you implement a major particularly for a small to mid sized company, you implement a major, you know, cyber protection regime within your company, you know, that's a bottom line issue that can raise cost mm-hmm. of your product. And if others aren't doing the same thing, you know, you've got a competitive issue there. Mm
1: hmm. And then I'm wondering, like, uh, I think I I did come to asking you at some point, um, because, of course, I've gone all over the map here, but um, (laughs) as I often do, as I said, I have a little bit of an ADD issue here. Um, But but who's going to I mean, like, if in a perfect world, uh, because you did mention an executive order coming from the Biden administration that promotes building resilience, more resilience into our supply chain. You know, what was that executive order? And, and would it, I mean, who's going to pay for something like that? Is that, I mean, again, is it like, is it just the company does it themselves? Or or is the government going to kick in some funds? Or is Congress going to pass, you know, a, a piece of legislation that allocates funds for, for that kind of you know, national resiliency building into computerized systems that control not just, I mean, really not just food, but I mean, banking and, you know, industrial product production of, I don't know, oil and gas or energy. I mean, we, you know, we saw that pipeline go down as well quite recently. Right. So, you know, I'm just wondering, like, what is, what is the thinking going forward in terms of hardening some of these systems?
2: Well, it's interesting that the, the supply chain uh, executive order that came out in February, uh, it, it addresses lots of things, not just the food supply system. Mm-hmm. Um, but it specifically says in it, for almost the first time in a supply chain context, that, that we have a need to reduce um, cyber vulnerabilities and address critical you know cyber components in the supply chains. Um, and th- there's a... Um, a couple of things that are happening. I mean, the the agencies who regulate various activities, and then let's look at the food supply. You've got FDA, you've got NOAA, um, yep. who oversees seafood, and you've got uh, USDA. They do a lot of work with crop production, and then FSIS for meat meat processing, and you know meat uh, and protein delivery. That's meat, poultry, and eggs. Fall into their bailiwick. They're all having to take a look at this. And I think uh, what's going to come from this are going to be recommendations for Congress to consider on steps to be taking, uh, as well as just some regulation promulgation that's going to come out. Because it's, and I've had many talks with folks at FDA and USDA on this, and I've served on some of the advisory committees on aspects of how all this is moving forward. And the argument is the language in the Food Safety Modernization Act. Is broad enough that regulations could be promulgated, you know, without having new law written to simply uh-huh. include cyber as one of the hazards that has to be addressed. I believe that's what's going to come here. Now, what that's going to do is gonna level the playing field. So if all the companies have to do this and there are standards implemented that everybody's gonna have to have to adhere to. Yes, it's gonna cost a little bit. Yes, you may see a slight increase in food. I mean that thing those things happen. But if everybody does it, it'll be across the board and won't be a competitive issue. Right. Absolutely.
1: And do you uh, I mean, when the when Congress filibustered against, um, you know, promoting cybersecurity back in 2012, um, it was because they were essentially succumbing to industry pressure. Uh, The U.S. Chamber of Commerce lobbied very heavily against doing this and, and other industries weighed in as well. I'm sure the meat industry was one of them. They you know, they throw a lot of money and wait around. Um, but at this point, I, I can't imagine that they can still promote the same arguments, which probably had to do with anti-competitiveness or the competition that it would raise. Um, what, what's your thought about that? Do you think that, um, that these, you know, organizations will be more inclined to support, you know, more regulation of their industry as when it comes to cyber security?
2: Oh, I, I I think that's gonna happen. I think industry sees the handwriting on the wall. Sure, mm-hmm. there were some who objected to 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 any new legislation that would create new laws simply because, you know, most companies don't want to have new regulations. They don't want right. to increase the cost of doing business. They don't wanna increase government involvement in their company. And if Correct. there are broad cyber regulations to be adhered to You know that's going to be another reporting area to government. It's going to be another area for potential inspection. So I get that mindset, but I think some of these events, like the 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 water event down in Tampa, where somebody tried to dump, you know, sodium hydroxide into the water supply, but an alert operator who was watching the system at the time was able to prevent it. The JBS event, I think Colonial. All these things, by the way, have cascades. It doesn't doesn't necessarily mean that the food was targeted, but the cascading effects of whatever happened begin to, you know, impact the food supply chain. Colonial Pipeline impacted it because it raised the price of diesel fuel and, oh, by the way, created delays in delivering products to stores. You know, those are cascade effects that affect everybody in the country. And when you have those kinds of effects becoming as apparent as they are now, this is where, you know... Legislators, politicians, and government almost have an obligation to say, "Okay, we got to take steps to uh, to deal with it." That's what I think is going to come out of this. That's my opinion, anyway. I, well, I don't know how you can watch these events that have occurred and not begin to take steps to to harden these systems. And the executive order has specifically called out doing that.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I don't see how you can, uh, you know, with any sense of conscience. Not that I think our political system has much of one left. But I mean, yeah, there's going to be torches and pitchforks if people aren't getting their food. Right. So what so in a perfect world, Colonel John Hoffman, what measures would you like to see? What do you think would be the best way to start, you know, cleaning up this kind of Wild West scenario where everybody is pulling in a different direction or doing different things. I mean, yes, it's regulations, yes, it's uh, guidances, but um, what, what, it, what is gonna make the more secure so cybersecurity scenario uh, as compared to what we have now? I mean, what steps do, ne- do you think need to be taken?
2: Well, I think there are going to have to be certain standards um, kind of written large uh, for all industries on things that must be done and how you operate in a high-risk environment. And this this is everything from modernizing your operating systems and keeping them patched and standards for compartmentalization of networks so they're not all physically connected together or connected to the Internet. I mean, that right. connection to the Internet is what creates problems. I think you're going to see new regulations on employee training as it relates to… Uh, to cyber systems you know these digital systems aren't going away they're they're still taking uh, a greater and greater role in the production of everything in our country not just food so we're going to have to have better training we're going to have to have a better understanding of how you know that kind of computer human interface works and by the way that computer human interface in factories also includes an employee doing his email with the company I mean, that's Mm. another interface point, and that's a a vulnerability in these systems. So I think you're going to see somewhat of a broad set of standards coming out. You know, the insurance industry has been pushing this for a while, and and many insurance companies offer, you know, cyber insurance for these kind of events. But they're also requiring companies to do certain things to qualify for, for the best rates if, if they're going to get that kind of coverage. So I think it's going to be a combination of insurance, going to be a combination of some regulations, it's going to be a combination of good management practices. But most importantly, I think cyber has to be included in the definition of hazards. That's what's right. going to have a big impact in the food and uh, agriculture world. Right. I mean, you know, it's just this is so
1: vast as I as my feeble little brain is like <laughs> taking in like just I mean, and, and especially as as automation becomes more and more prevalent. Um, do you think that that, you know, as more systems become automated, as more industries become automated, will that create more greater or lesser vulnerability um, in for you know hackers who want to who want to lift data or shut down systems or whatever
2: i i think that the the digital frontier is almost going to move into the realm of military defense um it's become that critical to you know economic well-being of countries yeah. not just businesses so, Amazing. given if given that that seems to be where we're going, and the more automation that occurs, the, the you know the smarter the robots that are being put in, the more mm-hmm. you know the more reliance we have on digital systems, it's going to become incumbent on us to take greater steps to protect those systems from attack, um, from sur- surreptitious penetration by people. Um, this is going to mean it's going to change how we do business in many ways, and it's going to require companies. To, to take steps to protect these systems in a way they've never done before. It's interesting yeah. that one of the things in the Food Safety Modernization Act is a requirement for companies to reasonably foresee. That's, that's the, the actual term used, to reasonably foresee risks and hazards to their food production operation. Clearly, cyber is part of that. So what does that right. mean for the companies? They're going to have to take fairly significant steps of protecting these systems. And I think you're going to find that to be an evolving science as we go forward. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, the, the attackers adapt, so defense has to adapt. But companies are going to have to be heavily engaged in this in a way many are not today.
1: Right, right. You know, it's it's very interesting because when you think about sort of the guys who run a lot of these companies, I mean, you know, not to be, you know, I don't know, glib or ageist or anything, but but um, but a lot of the people who run these large companies are older, right? They're not, their brains are not wired the way the younger generation is toward thinking about systems from that cybersecurity point of view, or even from a cyber point of view, if you will. And and so I think as, you know, I'm just hypothesizing here, but I think as as time goes on and some of those guys age out and a younger generation that is more digitally inclined, Starts assuming the levers of power. That's where I see um, things changing more rapidly. But quite honestly, right now, I think we got a bunch of dinosaurs, <laughs> and and that's why nothing has happened in the last ten years that has hardened off some of these systems. Do you? Would you think? Do you think that has some merit as a concept?
2: Am I making sense? In other words, John. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think there's I think there's some merit to it in in some cases, but I, a lot of cases that I'm f- personally familiar with, I think you're already seeing that kind of uh, digital mentality penetrate all the way up to the boardroom. I mean, I would consider right? myself to be in that generation you're referring to as being kind of uh, over the hill. But, you know, I, I get my you're over early the hill. computer. It's
1: just a different mindset, you know. Different it's
2: mindset. Like- I did my computer training, um, took my first computer classes in college in the 60s. And that, that'll give you kind of a benchmark wow. on where I stand. And, and yet, a lot of people who are my contemporaries never took a computer class. Right. So there is some truth to that. But on the other hand, most boardrooms understand the volatility of you know, critical information. I mean it's a pretty simple concept. It may not be on paper, it may be digital, but the data is still important. And I think they understand sure. that. I do think that there is still that reluctance to change. Hey, we used to do it this way and it worked. Why can't we do that now? Kind right. of mindset. That has right. to change. But I also think it has to change all the way down to the factory floor. I don't you know, yeah. I don't think that this is just a, you know, a leadership failure. I think it's it's uh broader than that in many of the companies. And they have to adapt. They've, they've got to modernize.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, I think really our, I mean, I think all of us to a certain extent, you know, people, we all complain about how many passwords we have to memorize or keep a record of, or, you know, and, and I'm constantly getting alerts that my password may have been compromised or, you know, I need to change, you know, it's like, so we all kind of get these messages. Um, and, and so many people, of course, have experienced identity theft. And that's really just part and parcel of this whole emerging phenomenon and that's yes, it i is. mean right and that's not even a new phenomenon itself i mean people have been having their identities stolen for at least 20 25 years now um through cyber through cyber criminality um but uh you know i am try- i you know it's just a it's it's this is accelerating at a rate that i think is possibly surprising or is it let me ask you this. Is it just that newspapers are reporting it more or companies are letting it be known that this is happening um, as opposed to keeping that cloak of, of uh, opacity over, it? particularly in the food supply, where everything is basically very secret? I mean, you know, they don't want anybody to know anything, right? So um, it's, it could be that it's, it's, it's been ongoing. But have you seen other instances uh, where a company like JBS has been targeted? And has coughed up a a big, fat ransom, like $11 bucks.
2: Yes, I have. There have been a number of companies that have been targeted. They have paid ransoms, uh, some near that, some smaller. Um, Right. I don't specifically know of any that are bigger, but that doesn't surprise me. I think in the Mm -hmm. case of... uh, you know, cyber criminality. Um, we're we're in something like a a new version of Moore's law about how frequently you know computer digital systems are going to evolve. I think I think the criminality in this arena is creates such opportunities for wealth. That it's accelerating very fast and people are now investing in this criminality. I mean, that's what we're seeing in Eastern Europe and and Russia and other parts of the world. And as people invest in this criminality, um, people are going to have to invest in the defense against it because it's going to be an ongoing thing until there are... You know, sufficient defenses and sufficient ability to track these events and prosecute that there becomes an effective deterrent. But right now, there isn't right. one, particularly right. when they can hide behind the frontier of another country.
1: Right, absolutely. So I, that that sort of begs my next question, which was, what do you see computer companies now racing ahead uh, in terms of trying to f- find ways? to um, shut this industry down, this criminal industry down? I mean, how how hard are computer companies like Apple or I don't know, you know, Bill Gates, you know, whatever, he's not even in charge of it, Microsoft. I mean, they're basically the two big kahunas, right? How much are they, you know, investing themselves in um, in, in in trying to develop new systems that are, are less vulnerable? Do you see oh, a big race I- to that?
2: Yeah, Yeah. there is without a question. This is uh, race is a good word. There's a there's a race going on between those who build and operate the systems um, for good and those that want to you know who have nefarious intent. And there's a tremendous amount being invested right now in how to harden these systems. In fact, it's going to change how we use them. I mean, you're going to see two and three factor um, access systems here very shortly, even at home, where you you won't just use a password. You'll have Either a key card, a physical device that you put in the computer, or you'll, wow. your phone and your computer will be linked so that if you log in with your computer, you've got to verify it's you on your phone um, wow. before the system will let you in. And this is what industry is moving toward, and a lot of people are doing this for their own systems, for banking and for you oh, know, sure. other online activities, purchasing. Um, I mean, Amazon does it. I have that set up with Amazon, so yes. that I have, you know it takes more than one thing to get into my Amazon account. Just use that as an example. And a lot of people are are beginning to do that. A lot of companies are putting those kinds of things in place because they recognize that they have a role in protecting their customers just like the customers have a role in protecting themselves. And this Mm -hmm. is true all the way to the computer system manufacturers. Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, of course, because, I mean, you see uh, companies send out alerts all the time that tell you, you know, you, you need to, like, do this or change your, you know, like, just regularly... Sort of informing people that not that they have themselves experienced, you know, some sort of hacking, uh, but they just want to make sure that people are aware that they need to, like, stay on top of this stuff and not be complacent, which, of course, most of us, and I include myself in that, um, are very complacent about it. Although I'm getting I'm I'm having a bit more of a come to Jesus moment after this conversation. Let me tell you.
2: (laughs) Well, I think there have been some pretty complacent companies up to now. But I think, uh-huh. the you know, the news of the last few months is uh, is probably going to be motivating some folks to take a new look at their systems, how they secure, how they engage with right. support companies to help them do cyber mm-hmm. defense, um, how they build in active monitoring, how they improve compartmentalization, and where is it really important to be connected to the net and where do you don't need actually to be connected to the net?
1: Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I see this is actually a whole new industry sort of springing up <laughs> to go alongside with, you know, the whole sort of computer industry itself will be the computer security industry or the cybersecurity industry,
2: you know, is going to ramp up in a big way.
1: Um, which I've is told probably a number you of young said. people,
2: this is an entire, you know, ev- entirely evolving career path for them yeah. that could be very lucrative to get into, uh, you know, and sure. if you're in college and studying computer science and you specialize in c- computer and cybersecurity, you know, your your prospects for employment are very high.
1: Right and kind of exciting too, although, you know, also kind of scary. I mean, it all sounds like, but I mean, I want to. We only have a couple minutes left, but I, I do want to address because you you actually brought up um, the hacking, the the in, the attempted introduction of a contaminant into a water supply system, and um, and I have often thought. That our water municipal water supply systems are probably very vulnerable in in all kinds of ways, not just with contaminants, but also with just like shutting down a system and and you know preventing water from flowing where it's supposed to flow at whatever time it's supposed to do it. Um, can can you just talk about that for a second?
2: Sure. There you know there's a lot of people who have this fear that somebody is going to back a eight thousand gallon tanker or truck up to a reservoir and you know dump. You know, some terrible chemical in there, and it's going to poison everybody. Not, not likely. I don't think that's the real scenario. Even in the case no. of what happened down near Tampa, where the, the attempt was to put the sodium hydroxide in, the likelihood is it wouldn't have hurt people because the the dilution factor and the massive mm-hmm. amount of water that they're trying to contaminate. Um, Isn't going to do much to people. They might find a bad taste. You know, there might there may be some slight risk, but that's not the big impact. The big impact is that when that water becomes contaminated, businesses downstream, particularly in the food and pharmaceutical world, um, or hospitals or others use that water. They they can't tolerate any contamination. right? Right. So if the parts per million are above a certain level. And dumping a certain amount of that into the water system was successful. That food company may have to shut down. That meat processing plant that used a tremendous amount of water would have to oh, yeah. would have to shut down. Hospitals may have to close off the valves until they have a way to you know clean the water up. So it's those cascade effects of these things uh, that are really the threat, as you mentioned. The, the ability to cause them to shut down or not be used don't necessarily have to really make it – turn the water into a deadly potion, all you've got to do is contaminate it a little bit so Mm -hmm. that it no longer meets the specifications for clean Mm -hmm. water coming into a process. Mm -hmm. That's what the effect is. That's where the problem is in water supplies. And that's why you're seeing the water industry taking fairly extraordinary steps of actually monitoring these systems in a way few other companies do. Most people have monitoring on their computers, but it's more for forensics afterwards. Whereas this is a case where they had somebody sitting in front of the computer, watching the network, watching functions occurring that were sensitive. And as soon as that person saw somebody get on, get on, get into the system and begin to change something, he immediately countered and overrode what they were doing because he could wow. see it happening in real time. Right. That kind of active intrusion detection prevention mitigation is the kind of thing you're going to need on really sensitive systems.
1: Yeah, yeah. But I'm also thinking uh, I'm thinking sort of beyond that contaminant level, because to be honest with you, I mean, I've done a lot of research around our water supply in the United States and we have enormous amounts of contaminants and many, many municipalities tolerate way more, you know, chemicals, uh, you know, nitrogen, phosphorus, uh, you know, like just to name the agricultural chemicals, never mind industrial waste byproducts that are, you know, filtering through into, you know, say North Carolina, which is like one giant Toxic waste dump, you know, but I mean, but the actual systems themselves, like the waterworks themselves, like, you know, how those waterworks, I'm sure, have some computerized systems that, you know, determine flow levels, for example, or, um, you know, monitor uh, amounts. I mean, if you're charged for water, for example, if if water meters are, you know... Determining how much water is flowing through the system. And then, I mean, I, those are the systems that I think seem like nobody ever talks about, but which, as you say, could have huge cascade effects. I mean, never mind if it's contaminated, but just if it just, like, shuts down. What if, you know, what if they decide that they're going to, like, just close a valve somewhere and one entire section of the city is no longer able to receive water? That's the but kind of thing see, I'm that's thinking what, about.
2: That's what that individual sitting at the terminal watching the system was able to prevent. Right. As soon as they tried to open a valve he you know intervened and made it so they couldn't uh, couldn't open the valve but he could do that for the whole system. He was in a in an active monitoring anti-intrusion if you will mm-hmm. mode and that's the kind of engagement we need on these systems to mm-hmm. uh, to protect their operation and protect all of us who use them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. John, this has just been a fascinating episode. I can't thank you enough for joining me today. I'm sure everybody has learned an enormous amount. Um, I hope I didn't throw too much smoke up to, you know, because I'm always so disorganized in my thinking. But anyway, um, I really appreciate this. Uh, I hope you'll come back sometime. I'd love to talk about this further, especially as this you know, this kind of begins to unfold in front of us. Um, I'm sure there'll be a lot more to talk about in future episodes. So I think I mean, there I'm- will
2: be. This has been this has been uh, a very interesting period to go through. You know, watching this whole JBS and the Colonial Pipeline. Uh, yeah. process unfold, particularly those of us who have been kind of carrying this banner for a while, trying to get people to pay attention to it. So I appreciate the opportunity to share with you and your audience on this. And it is an important topic. It, yeah. needs, uh, it needs support to the highest levels of government and in industry absolutely
1: and it, and it needs transparency and it needs exposure to the public i mean that's that's my goal is to like let people know that this is an issue and that they do need to pay attention to it and that at the ballot box that's Indeed. going to be something that matters so um people can find out more by going to the food protection and defense institute website yes
2: yeah if you go to the university of uh, minnesota website you can you'll find uh that you can go right to fpdis uh web pages. If you do a search on Food Protection Defense Institute uh, online, it'll take you right to it. A number of links will come up, and there's quite a few resources there for people who want to learn more about these issues, what the Institute is doing, and what some of the projects are.
1: Fantastic. Thank you so, so much, John. I really appreciate it, um, and I'm sure we'll be talking again sometime in the future. And thanks Glad to my to sponsors, here. and thank you folks for tuning in for this week's episode. We'll see you again next week. Um, have a great week. So long for now. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork.